Go to John 2. We're going to start in verse 11. I want to tell you that the Bible difficulties book, the handbook of Bible difficulties, presents John 2 as a chronological problem, uh, a problem relating to the timing of events. And this is because all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place a clearing of the temple in the last few days of Jesus' life. John has no such clearing in the last few days of Jesus' life, but does have one in the first week of Jesus' ministry, or first few months of Jesus' ministry. And they say various things about it, but one that just I find wholly unacceptable that I want you to know that we'll address today is they say, well, you know, maybe for theological reasons, John chose to manipulate these events to emphasize something. Uh, Best I can tell, John was an eyewitness to events, and he related them just the way that he saw them. So if that's not the answer, if it's not that John selectively pulled something from the third year of Jesus' ministry and put it in the first, I began to wonder, what is the answer? And like so many things we found out in our church, the reason that we have Jesus' name in Hebrew on the front of the pulpit and so many things that we emphasize from Hebraic roots is we were missing something in a cultural understanding. In Jesus' day, mildew was a problem in houses. Anywhere that a damp environment was allowed to uh, propagate mildew, it did. And they didn't have Clorox to go throw on the walls. And everybody was familiar with the ways in which you cleansed a house from mildew. And we're going to read a little bit about that, but I want to start in John 2, verse 11. Verse, yeah, 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith or trust in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. By the way, when you see something like Capernaum, you need to understand that is an English word to us. We say Capernaum. In Hebrew, it is Kafir Nahum. Kafir is a village. Nahum was a prophet. They went to the home of Nahum, the prophet. One of the things that our church is trying to do is re-embrace the original culture that the scriptures were given in so that we don't miss details because we've Americanized it. Y'all can understand that? Okay. He's there with his mother and his brothers. Sisters, by the way, he had two. And it is uh, his very first Passover. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men. By the way, always Jews go up to Jerusalem. It's elevated, but that's not why they go up. Anywhere you are in the world, even if you're at the top of Mount Everest, if you are a Jew, when you go to Jerusalem, you are going up because this is the place where God's name dwells. Jerusalem is the place where there was a temple that his name dwelt in. And so you had to ascend from wherever you were to the place of God's name. It's a way of speaking that lets us know that his ways are higher than our ways, but we should aim for him. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. I've always wondered about this. None of the Gospels mention that Jesus made a whip except John. How did he make a whip? Did Jesus go, whip, and it appeared? <laughs> you know? Boy, I'm going to whip you. Whip. And now he did it? How did that work? Or do you think that he methodically sat down as he prayed about God's will, as he sought what needed to be done, and actually wove these cords into a whip? I would vote for the latter and not the former. In other words, this was not an impetuous act of anger. This was not an outburst. This was something that was calculated for a purpose. Well, what is wrong with them selling cattle? and dove, and sheep in the temple courts or in the temple areas. I mean, after all, don't God's people need all of these things? Yeah, they do need those things. You need to know, though, that the psalm that is quoted here gives us insight into it. Watch what he says. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Psalm 69. 
Jews have a way of quoting scripture, and it is called stringing pearls. And when you string pearls, what this means is you quote any part of one psalm, one scripture, and everything that is around it is implied in its context. So that it's not necessary, it's not necessary to say, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You might simply say, the word says love, and the rest is implied because you already have it memorized. It's a part of the fabric of your life. I don't have to tell you that we write a stop sign, stop sign, that it's red and octagonal to tell you I came to the end of the street and stopped. You kind of know there's a stop sign there because it's part of your culture. Well, when this scripture is quoted, it is implied the larger context. And in Psalm 69, starting in verse 7, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. The first time I read this, I thought, what on earth does that have to do with clearing the temple? I didn't get it at all. I, I looked at it and I thought, hmm, maybe John, you know, misquoted that. I didn't really think that. But I didn't get it. You need to understand that in this first century, what is happening is there are Jews that are in what's called the diaspora. In fact, we have Jews in here today that are Sephardic Jews, meaning that they were cast out of Spain at some point. Well, how did, how did Jews ever get to Spain? How did that happen? Several times in history, God has scattered his people around the globe. That's called the diaspora. And when he scattered them around the globe, some returned at different times. That's called making aliyah. And when they returned... There was a special sense of achievement. We've gotten back to the place where God founded us as a nation. We've gotten back to the place that eventually all peoples on the planet will stream to. And in that satisfaction, there could be a small sense of pride. Because if you made it back to the place you should be, what about all those who are still living out there among the Gentiles? Right? It's funny. No matter what we dress religion in, it always manifests the same kind of fruit. You can paint the leaves on an apple tree red, but they still produce apples. This is the way that works. So these Jews who are at the temple, who are worshiping in a way that the Lord says to worship, are taking advantage of someone. People who are coming from a distance get a different exchange rate with their money. They might not get the very best sheep, the very best cattle. Because if you've come from a long way, how are you going to get your, your sheep with you? You're not. You're going to sell what you have, bring the silver to the temple, and offer it to someone who is selling you a sheep to sacrifice. You follow me? Jesus was livid with this unequal practice, what the Bible calls dishonest scales, because it showed contempt for God's mercy to these people. Not only that, the psalm that's quoted gives you insight. Why do they not like Jesus? The insults that were meant for God, his father, were falling upon him. They did not have a problem necessarily with Jesus. They had a problem with God's way, which Jesus was showing them. God was not happy with what was going on here. And so the insults directed towards God were falling upon Jesus. He shows up and he clears this temple out because he did not want his temple the temple for the name and function and authority of God to be an instrument to extort people. <laughs> tell me, when you meet lost folks out on the street, right, what do they tell you organized religion is? A means to extort or control people. Don't you hear that? Am I the only one that's heard that? My drunk relatives love to sit and prophesy about it. I mean, they solve all the world's problems except their own. And they, they, they explain to me that really religion is just for weak-willed people. Really, religion is for women and children as a means to control the, the people. And all those churches really want is your money anyway. Well, where would they get an idea like that? There is a corruption among the religious that sees ourselves as a little better than someone else and allows us to act selfishly and justify it. The exchange rate for diaspora Jews and especially for Gentile proselytes was horrific. Absolutely horrific. You might sell something for a dollar and get all the way to Jerusalem, and what was worth a dollar in the diaspora is suddenly worth a penny, a hundred times less at the temple because you had no choice. And this kind of offense was taking place in God's name. 
Now, why did they feel justified in it? Think about that. Well, those Diaspora Jews, the ones that live outside Jerusalem, they're all compromisers. They're all backslidden. They're not nearly as holy as I am. They haven't suffered under the oppression of the Roman like I have. They're out there making nice with the Gentiles. They live just like the world. I know nobody in church has ever had that kind of thought. You've never done the Psalm 73 thing that wonders why your neighbor prospers while you suffer until you enter the house of the Lord and then you consider their final outcome. Let me ask you something. If the Diaspora Jews were compromisers, did they need to be in God's temple more or less? I'm encouraging a faith, a community of believers that looks at what people need and gives them that rather than what their actions deserve. If you give people what they deserve, all of us will end up devouring each other. If you give people what they need, we will all be compelled to be better men and women than we were the day before. Now, what about these Gentile proselytes that are there? You mean this guy's coming into favor with God? This guy who last week helped Romans extort my family? This guy's now going to come worship God? A jealousy that is there. How can he find mercy when I've served God? So they felt justified in doing these things. And Jesus actually made a whip and drove them out of the house of God. What an amazing thing. Turn with me to Leviticus 14. By the way, on this note of being angry with Jesus because he stood for God's way, people are never angry with you when they agree with you. Right? There is no test of obedience. There is no test of your relationship. There is no test of leadership as long as the people following you are going where they would like to go. Right? I go get all those kids in children's church and say, look, y'all believe that God has anointed me to lead you? Yes, yes, we believe that. Good. We're going to the ice cream store. 100% perfect obedience, following in line, waiting to get to the ice cream store. That's a little different than let's suppose some of them have not been able to swim yet. I say, God is leading us to the swimming pool. We must cross it. Will I get the same 100% perfect obedience or would there be some squirming? But nevertheless, the truth remains. Either God is leading you or he is not leading you. And this is a fundamental conclusion. Jesus has shown up and he is the shepherd of Israel. But because they don't like God's way, they don't like him. Mind you, they would never admit they didn't like God's way. It's just much easier to say, isn't this the carpenter's kid? Are you kidding me? Do y'all remember the rumors about when he was born? I mean, isn't it easier to do that? Isn't he from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? In fact, I was given an article today. It says, Deadly Viper, Character Assassinations. This is Christian software. It's Christian software called a Kung Fu Survival Guide for Life and Leadership. Now, why would... <laughs> why would... Why would Zondervan, one of the largest publishers in the United States for Christian materials, need to publish something that is a Kung Fu Survival Guide for Life in Christian Leadership? If you are leading Christians, why would you need to defend your life? Can I tell you why they publish it? Because it's necessary. That's why they publish it. We all do good as long as we agree with the direction. Obedience is never tested when you agree with the direction. Obedience is tested when you're like, everything in me says no. But I'm going to trust that God's working in this. Now, friends, if you think I'm preaching to you, you need to understand. If the last few weeks of my life have taught me nothing, it's that this is a major problem in my life. When I don't like the way things go, I begin to look to see, Lord, you must not be in this. Lord, you, you must be thinking something else. Lord, I must have missed it somewhere. Why? Because it's become uncomfortable? How else are you going to be formed and shaped? Deuteronomy 8 teaches us something. Deuteronomy 8, you don't turn there. I rarely lie when I preach. Deuteronomy 8 says, God humbled you in the desert. And then he caused you to hunger. And he caused you to hunger so that he could feed you to test you in order to know what was in your heart. How do we know what is in your heart? How does God know it? And how do you know it? When you are put in situations that go completely contrary to the way you would like them to go. 
The word Gethsemane is Hebrew for olive press. This is where we see Jesus kneeling over a rock. And there is a way that he would prefer not to have to go. In a way that the Father has commanded him. And this pressure squeezed out of him something. It squeezed out of him blood and water and the phrase, Nevertheless, your will be done. Saints, if there's something we need to learn to say, it is, Nevertheless, God's will be done. My boss is an idiot. Nevertheless, God's will be done. My pastor has lost the anointing. <laughs> I was in a meeting one time where a woman stood up and pointed at the pastor and said, You lost the anointing. And I thought, well, it's obviously showing up right here, huh? Her and her husband got cancer that year. They got healed and they're serving Jesus right now. See, we get put in difficult positions to see what is in our own heart. It's not because God wants to harm us. He wants to clear the temple so that he can do something with you. Are you in Leviticus 14? Leviticus 14, let's start in the 33rd verse. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving to you as your possession, and I put a spreading mildew in the house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like mildew in my house. I want you to understand like fruit on a tree, God put something in the house of an Israelite that everybody could see, but it was just a symptom of something unseen that was growing. The process of cleansing required something. It required them to admit, inside my house, behind the doors, behind the window shades, where nobody else can see unless I let you in, intimacy is into me see. It requires you to go be intimate with the priest. I mean this in a holy way. Let him see into your life and say, i got something growing in the walls of my heart that should not be growing here. The process for cleansing a house from mildew involved you recognizing something that should not be there and going to an outsider who stood as a mediator between you and God, lays his hand upon both you and God, the arbitrator Jesus, and says, there's something in my heart that should not be there. I want to tell you I've not found anything so difficult as to get Christians to admit. When I say, when somebody comes to me, let's use Eric as the example, that becomes much easier. Gabe comes and says, brother, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I didn't, I didn't mean to offend you. No, brother, I'm fine. I'm fine. Look, no problem at all. Hey, I love you. Go on. You know, it's all good. But the truth is he left a gash in my heart. But I'm not going to admit that. Why am I not going to admit that? Well, because we're Christians. We're supposed to be dead to self. We're better than that, right? We're stronger than that. Pride. Pride. I don't want him to know that I was weak. Something amazing happens. When we admit our weakness, it is an opportunity for God to become strong. When we cling to our own strengths, we minimize God's ability to work in our life. So to cleanse a house from mildew, first you had to recognize an outward sign of something that was really inward and invite somebody to come and help you. The owner of that house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like mildew in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to examine the mildew so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. I want you to understand that when mildew is growing in our hearts, we have to empty all the ancillary issues. But he said, but, but she said, do you know one time? All of those are peripheral issues. None of them matter. The issue is something creeped in there and is producing mildew. Does it really matter who was right and who was wrong in the end? Or does it matter that there is mildew there? There's a thief in your house. Does it matter who left the door unlocked or just that there's a thief in your house? Saints, so many times I've gotten to an altar and found a thief in my house. And I spend most of my time wondering how to prevent it in the future. Who, who's the cause of this? What is the root cause? What difference does it make? The thief is in my house. Deal with that. Everything else is an ancillary issue. The priest shows up. First thing he does is empty the house. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. People don't want and throw, throw inspections of their hearts. Instead, we say things like, nobody knows my heart except God. Really? Can I not know a uh, kind of tree? You know? How, how do I know 
that my dog's a dachshund and not a bulldog. But we claim this, nobody sees us accurately but us. I want to tell you the opposite is true. Most people see you accurately and you don't see yourself accurately. I wish that weren't true. It's not just true for you. It's true for me as well. We very often are the worst judge of our own character. We give ourselves every benefit of the doubt and we assassinate everyone who tries to point flaws in our lives. Saints, this must stop. He is to examine the mildew on the walls and see if it has a greenish or reddish depressions. By the way, our sermon title, Darren, is Red and Green Should Never Be Seen. Greenish or reddish depressions on the surface of the wall. In other words, the priest's job is to show up and say, John, there are these issues that you've brought to our attention that are in your heart. I need to let some time pass and see whether or not they are surface only, in other words, easily wiped off and removed, or do they permeate every bit of the wall? So what the priest does is after he sees the reddish-greenish depressions, he orders the house completely emptied. He goes outside of it for seven days. And then when he shows back up, he wants to see, did it spread or did it shrink? And this determines his next course of action. Saints, God will put you in a position where you are being squeezed, where you are hurting a little bit, in order to know what is in your heart. And as you see reddish or greenish mildew, things like envy and anger, which are all summed up in the word selfishness, we have a choice. He will put you in isolation for a little while. You don't hear his voice every second. You don't feel encouragement at every moment. In order to see whether this thing inside of you will shrink or grow. This is a really important time because it determines the future of the house. He is to examine the mildew on the walls and if it has greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out of the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return and inspect the house. If the mildew has spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside of town. He must have all the inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside of town. Then they are to take the other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster from the house. This is a situation where a man like David has found things in his heart that should not be there. They've manifested in his actions and God has had to expose it. And in the quiet time, in the seven-day period, he says, Lord, there's not a good stone in my heart. Replace my heart. Mm. Create in me a new heart. One that is pure. One that is steadfast. He realized that his own building was not working. He was actually corrupting what God was trying to do in his life. And it was showing up in his actions. Mm. Did he recognize that all by himself? No. God sent him the prophet Nathan and the seer Gad. Because we are often slow to recognize our own flaws. So God puts other people in our lives. And what do we do? We hate them for pointing it out. No, in the name of Jesus, we say, thank you. Say, but they don't see rightly. Well, that's okay. What's the worst thing that could happen from thanking them? What were their actions motivated by? Were they trying to tell you how to grow in the Lord? Or were they trying to hurt you, harm you, throw you out? It's funny how whatever man wants to justify, he can. It's funny how that works. I'd like to move on from this with the idea that how are you doing in this test? The things that have shown up in your heart from unjust treatment in those in authority over you, from unjust treatment in those that are in authority beneath you. Your children don't respect you rightly. Your wife is not treating you well. You are having a problem with someone else. How are you doing during that waiting period now that you've identified something's in my heart that shouldn't be there? Is it multiplying? Is it growing? Is it consuming your life to the point that everybody you meet, you just can't help but find a way to bring it up? Is it consuming your life to the point where you will not meet with people? You've become a recluse to protect yourself. In what way 
Is that working for you? Turn with me to Luke 17. That was the first cleansing of the temple, by the way. We will come back. There is a second cleansing of the temple. There, there. Everybody got quiet. Are y'all mad at me already? I read a book uh, this week that I really, really liked, and I got some good things from it. It was by John Bevere. I recommend everybody in the church read it. If I could buy it for you, I would buy it for you. Right now I'm not able to, so I'm going to recommend that you spend a whole $13 and go buy it. It is called The Bait of Satan. Now, a funny thing about recommending a book to someone, you need to understand it was recommended to me first. Okay? So somebody came and said, Eric, you, you above all people I know, should read this book. So I'm not recommending it to you because you have a problem. I'm recommending it to you because we all have this problem. Brad Lively is the one that recommended it to me. And I'm devouring it. It is an unbelievable book. Are you on in Luke 17? Yes. Starting in the first verse. Jesus said to his Talmudim, his disciples... Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It's funny, that whole phrase, things that cause people to sin, in a lot of translations is one word, offenses. If somebody in here is reading a King James or New King James, it says offenses must come, but woe to the one they come through. New American Standard says something similar. So how is it that offenses and things that cause people to sin get translated? NIV is trying to translate a thought, and they do very well with it. But there is a word behind that thought, and the actual word is scandalon. When I say scandalon, you English speakers in here, what does that remind you of? Scandal. scandal. Now tell me something. Has anybody ever been part of a scandal willingly? Right? Oh, yes, please involve me in that scandal. Put my name on the front page that says scandal. Probably not. Scandals are something you're caught in. They're not something that you go try to join. Scandals are something you're caught in. Would you be surprised to know that the word scandalon refers to a trap? Like a uh, one of those Bugs Bunny kind of traps where there's a box and a stick that is right here and a string. And when the rabbit goes in the box, you pull out the stick and the trap falls on him. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The stick in Greek is scandalon. So when we see things that cause people to sin, we need to understand it is a trap that people fall into that causes sin. An offense is an ensnaring of you. It is an entrapment of you. Well, if he said something that was ugly to me and that hurt my feelings, how is that an entrapment? How is it? It's because Proverbs 18 says this, 18, 19. An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. And disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel, a fortress. The devil knows that if he can get you to be offended, if he can get you to be hurt, which he has me many times, what begins to happen is the natural response to that is that you begin to try to push others away. Keep them at a little bit of a distance. Now, are you called to be a guarded, walled city? Or are you called to be a city on a hilltop shedding light in every direction? Yes. How many times have you walked under a street lamp and it said, <clears throat> not worthy, you can't receive my light? <laughs> the light shines out wherever it may. Wherever it may. That's what we're called to be like. To love without condition. Offenses, scandalon. It's an entrapment. Turn with me to Matthew 5. By the way, while y'all are turning to Matthew 5, I want to tell you about this. In Luke 17, when we get to 17, there's no chapter breaks in the original. It takes place in such a strange progression of events. You know what they were talking about right before he says scandal on's bound to come? Rich man and Lazarus is a parable. And these guys are discussing with Father Abraham. If you do a great miracle, if you raise somebody from the dead, surely my brothers will all understand. He said, no, that's not true. Scandal on is bound to come, but woe to the one they come through. So, well, 
Eric, what, what's your point? Have you ever had the idea if there was just a powerful healing, it would fix all these problems? If there was just some kind of display of God's power that nobody could deny, then everybody would walk rightly? Have you ever read about Israel that came out of Egypt and said, how on earth could they have watched the Red Sea split and then all of a sudden think God was trying to kill them in the desert? Have you ever done that? When I was first born again, I had the opportunity to pray for a woman that was in the last months of her life. Uh, Me and many other people, Matthew and our pastor. They would not accept her into experimental studies because she was too close to death. They had a vial of her blood that was completely AIDS-infected, and her white cell blood count was so low that they did not expect her to live weeks. She got healed. And when she got healed, they had her blood afterwards, and not only did it not have the HIV virus in it, it was some form of the human condition that is least likely to ever obtain AIDS, the one that is most resistant to it. Geraldo Rivera called this woman at home. Oprah Winfrey pursued this woman. The local news media camped out outside of her house, and the Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland flew her there, and she stayed for a month while they answered questions. Wouldn't you think this woman would be closer to Jesus than anybody you had ever known? I mean, what a mighty display. She was in jail within a year for embezzlement from a charity. They don't fix our problems, saints. Miracles are wonderful, but they don't fix heart conditions. I want to tell you, this was not a bad woman. She was just like any of you, just like me, and she fell to her own weakness. She was so scared she wouldn't see her children graduate, and Jesus healed her so that she could see them graduate. When they graduated, she was in jail, and she recently died. Wouldn't you like to believe that if we could just have the right kind of move of God, it would fix everything? There is something a move of God will not fix. That's the condition of your heart. That's your job to fix. You know, the Bible describes hearts like four kinds of soils. And man's very first job was to work the soil. I'm telling you, saints, we better work the soil. I told you all to go to Matthew 5, right? Let's see a righteous example. Is it all right if we go all over our Bibles today? Hallelujah. In Matthew 5... I want to start with you in verse 44. Might as well start in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the scripture never says hate your enemy. This was an oral interpretation that Jesus is correcting. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We put ourselves in positions where we say, I don't have to love this person because. Right? I want to tell you first, let's talk about the word love. Uh, you know the word of the city of Philadelphia? City of brotherly love. Philo was a word for love that you could use. And it means Brad loves me, I love Brad. He scratches my back, I scratch his. Right? It's a love that when I receive, I reciprocate. That's phileo. Agape is something totally different. Something that really theologians have called the God kind of love. Because it does not require reciprocity. It does not require it to be returned. And in an example of how God loves, Jesus speaking said... He causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we walk outside and it's rain, we see that as a bad thing. I want to tell you, in the land of Israel, it is not a bad thing. Water can be scarce. Rain is seen as a blessing from God. This is saying God rains down his blessings on both those who deserve it and those who don't deserve it. Be like him. So, well, I just don't feel that way. Love is not about feeling. Love is a commitment to a course of action. You can love someone through your actions, whether you feel it or not. I'm a personal fan of saying, do what is right and the feelings will eventually come. If you never do what is right, the feelings may never come. I know, saints, it'd be so much easier just to say, hey, would y'all like some donuts? We could build a gymnasium here. (laughs) The circumcision of the heart 
is a painful process. I'm not speaking to you as somebody who is standing here complete. Not even close. But the good news is the walls of my temple are still being scraped and there is still hope. How are you doing? Have you made peace with the mildew? Well, it can have that wall. I still got three left. It can have that wall. I still got a doorway, a way of escape. It can have this wall because I know that's for him, but I still have a ceiling. That's, that's between me and God. That's our relationship. Uh-oh, it's creeping up the ceiling. The mildew will never stay contained. Never. It either is there or it's not there. There is no in-between. This is why the Word says if you have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go to him. That's why it says that. That's why it says don't let the sun go down upon your anger. These are not optional Christian commands. It's not, you know, for everybody but you, Jeremy, because, you know, let's face it, you and I are tight. It's not that way. These are imperative statements. The word imperative is a grammatical term that means imperial commands. Commands from the monarchy to us, the servants. Let's move on to uh, Psalm 55. You know, last night I couldn't sleep. And uh, I was concerned about this message. One of the problems with having things in your heart is it's difficult to see past your own filter. For instance, if my feelings are hurt, it's difficult to know is this thought I'm having motivated from my hurt feelings or is it motivated from the truth of the word? And we'd like to believe that we all see clearly, but the truth is our own experiences shade things. If every day you walk down the street a black dog attacks you, the next dog that you see that happens to be black, you tend to shy away from, whether or not that dog's vicious or not. Well, if every time you have been in a position where the leader over you misused his authority, you can learn to hate all authority. Satan begins to build this into people from the time they are two years old forward. Because he knows if he can destroy the flow of authority in your life, you will never walk right into kingdom. Couldn't sleep. I was wondering, is this message that's rolling around in me for me, Lord, or is it for the whole church? And he smiled and said, Both. Mm. And I turned on the television and the passion of the Christ was on. And can you imagine what scene was on? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' body was being torn apart, and he was showing love for everyone around him. I've got such a long ways to go. I know you guys are safely inoculated from that kind of pressure. But I still have to grow in Jesus. You know in Psalm 55? The devil is very smart. That's about all the good I want to say about him today. And in Psalm 55, starting in verse 20, my companion attacks his friends. No, it's not what I wanted. Uh, it's up from that. It is Psalm 55, 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked in the throng with the house of God. The enemy is wise. And when he wants to bring serious offense into your life, who hurts you more? The stranger who walked by outside a few minutes ago and looked in like you were all crazy? <laughs> or when your spouse or your children or your sister or your, some sibling treats you like you're an idiot? So why do you think the devil works so hard to cause that? The closer the relationship, the deeper the wound. And he knows this. So what's the answer? No close relationships. You'll all stay in a distance. This is not what God's called us to. He's called us to love without regard to ourselves. So that you're not worried about whether or not you're hurt. That's between God and the other person. You are called to love without limit. The agape kind of love that does not require reciprocity. You know, when David wrote this psalm, his son Absalom was leading a rebellion against him. And his closest advisor, Ahithophel had sided with him. Are you ready to kill Absalom and Ahithophel? Because when I think about that, I am. I mean, I'm just ready to go to town. 
but I'm sure Ahithophel felt completely justified. After all, he was Bathsheba's grandfather and hadn't the king just wronged her? You know, the scripture never says that. You just find it from the genealogies. We're all perfectly justified in our own eyes. When will it stop and we simply love each other, give each other what we need rather than what we deserve? If you think I'm a bad pastor and not doing a good job in your life, is it going to help me that you come against me or hurt me? If I'm already a bad pastor, then I certainly need your help to be a better one, right? Apply that standard to everybody in your life. I said, well, they did this and this and this. What are you going to do? I said, do you think they need me more now or less? First woman we baptized in this church a week later was so angry she wouldn't speak with us, right? We went to her house, went to her workplace, went everywhere we could. In my own home, the discussion was going on. I mean, come on, enough's enough. I mean, she did this, this, and this. Aren't you just going to let it go? I said, do you think she needs our help more now or less now? See, saints, at some point, we have to care about what happens to the other people more than being right in our own eyes. You have to. You have to. This is what it means to love your neighbor. It means to care more about what happens to him if you don't act on his behalf than what happens to you if you do. What's the cost of loving someone? Well, it might hurt your reputation. It might mean they always do this. They keep doing it and doing it and doing it. They only crucify you once. They only crucify you once. Turns me to 2 Corinthians. Actually, I'll quote 2 Corinthians for you. Okay? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and left, we demolish every stronghold arguments and pretensions that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Understand that what the Bible calls a stronghold in your life, this is a fortified area that the enemy has dominion in. It's when there's an offense that causes a pretension. You know what a pretension is? It's a claim as to who was right. I'm right. An argument. Vicious back and forth. That is a stronghold. The body of Christ is supposed to tear those down. It doesn't say if the other person is just. Our God loves those who are just and unjust. You ever fallen into the trap of saying, but they wronged me so badly that now the whole thing's screwed up, my calling's not going to work right, nothing's going to work right. I mean, I one time felt pushed out of a church and uh, I was very tempted to think those people zigged when they should have zagged. This has thrown a wrench in God's plan. And because they wronged me, now I must suffer here. Boy, that really is arguing for such a small God. Couldn't help it. Joseph, Joseph, we read the story of Joseph. And we know how the story ends. So when you see him thrown in a well, you're like, <laughs> but he's going to be the king of Egypt. And when you see him sold the Ishmaelite traders, you say, but he's going to be the king of Egypt. You know who didn't know that? <laughs> and when he's accused of rape because he would not do something indecent, we say, but he's going to be the king of Egypt. But he didn't know that. You think that there was ample opportunity for a mildew to grow in his heart. I, I kind of think that there, there was. Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20, I quote for you. He says, what you meant for my harm, God has used for good to accomplish the salvation of many lives. Saints, we need to understand, Psalm 105 says God sent Joseph to Egypt. Well, I don't know about you, but it's pretty difficult for me to stretch in my reasoning to go God sent him. Because it looks like ten sinful brothers threw him in a well. <laughs> it looks like some greedy Ishmaelite traders bought him for a price. And by the way, when they threw him in a well, they were, they were doing something worse than condemning him to death. If he married, she would become a slave. If they had children, they would become slaves. They were condemning his entire progenitory to slavery. And the word says, God sent him there. Well, I'm here because Jennifer wronged me. No, you're right where God wanted you to be, and it is a great test for your heart so that you can get it right. You know how you know Joseph got it right? 
He didn't cut his brother's heads off. Good thing they weren't my brothers. I'm still growing. Be patient with me. I'll try to be patient with you. We're learning this. We're learning this. You want to be mature? Learn to use the word in every situation. Not to justify yourself. Not to point out others' flaws. But to shine the mirror on your own mildew. I think we probably better get to Matthew 25. I've, I've got about 15 minutes to finish this up. Because we'll all turn into pumpkins if the pastor goes over his time. Actually, I've never been very concerned about that. I talk about it as in a joking way. But you need to know there was a time in my life where we baptized 50 people in a church with 200 on a Sunday morning. And I had the church clock taken off the wall. Because I said, if you're concerned about what time you get out of here, you don't love Jesus enough. And when the senior pastor got back, he was pretty concerned about the arrogance of that statement, the disregard for the people in children's church, the disregard for people there that had prior commitments and all of those things. And I had so arrogantly, blatantly said, if you don't love Jesus enough, then, you know, I condemned everybody there who did not feel exactly like I did about something. But I want you to know I was completely justified in my own eyes. And when he corrected me, oh, I, I did what I was supposed to do. Yes, sir. Thank you. And in my heart, I thought, you, well, you know what I thought. You think the same thing. It's probably when I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know what, though? Enough time's gone by where I can see he was right and I was immature. Enough time's gone by for that. It took longer than seven days. The mildew spread for a long time before we got it under control. But praise be to God, he's not building a temple out of stones. He's building them out of living stones. Yeah. And I am one of them. Yeah, and you were yeah. one of them. The great thing about something living is it has the ability to change. It's not condemned to a form that it was made in. It has the ability to change. Matthew 25, I want to read you a one-liner just to show you the uh, serious cost before we get into the second cleansing here the serious nature of getting this right. Uh, Matthew 25, I said 25, it's not. It's 24, 10. Everything looks different in my new Bible. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the Increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I want you to hear this. That word there is scandalon itso. Mm. Many will scandalize themselves away from the faith. Many will entrap themselves away from the faith. Many will ensnare themselves away from the faith. Another way to say it is many will be offended and fall away from the faith. Mm. And then what happens? That offense... That being ensnared, not properly dealt with, causes us to betray one another. Where you would have had your brother's best interest in mind because he wronged you, now you don't really care if people respect them or not. I mean, after all, you need to see what he's really like. It causes us to hate each other. And what's the next thing that pops up in the scripture? False prophets appear. See, when we're ensnared... It opens the door for betrayal. It opens the door for hate. Ultimately, it opens the door for deception. You know? Every time somebody comes to our church and tells me how hurt they were at the last church, all I can think about is, am I next on the list? Because offense opens the door for betrayal, for hate and deception. Be careful who you gather around you to console you. They might be the, false prophet, the same false prophet that shares your weakness. Mm. If when you get together with someone, all you can do is commiserate with each other about how unjust, bad, unfair somebody else is, you might be further into the mildew than you thought you were. Very important that you gather around people that love you enough to say, you know what, you really should stop that. You're better than that. You're a son of God. Those aren't the words of God. Cut it out. So what that so-and-so has the ability to pull the vacuum? Forget about it. Let it go. Let's move on. We need to be able to do that. When's the last time somebody called you on the phone just to let you know how things were going? How to pray? And you said, oh, brother, I don't need to know that. My God's big enough. He knows my needs before I say them. 
Why don't we stop right there? When's the last time you put the brakes on someone who is just pouring forth garbage? When's the last time somebody did it to you? The body of Christ is accountable to each other. We should be doing this. Uh, back to Leviticus 14. We're going to wrap this up here in a few minutes. But I've got something that is so good for you. If you tune me out, you would just be missing out. You're not going to tune me out, huh? No. Good. I know Leviticus is in here. Okay, got it. We're going to pick up in verse 43. See, after a temple was inspected, or a house was inspected, after it was cleared for a perfect length of time, if you came back and there was still mildew growing, you scraped the walls, you put new stones in. Then you left for God knows how long. Maybe, let's say, three years, right? From the first Passover of Jesus to the last week of the Passion. I mean, who knows how long this is? We're dealing with the situation where you have tried to remedy the problem by scraping stones, putting in new stones. You've left. The house has been filled again. And now something has happened. Verse 43. If the mildew reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house has been scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mildew has spread in the house, it is a destructive mildew. The house is unclean. It must be torn down, its stones, timbers, and all plaster, and taken out of town to an unclean place. Almost like one stone is not left on another stone, huh? Turn with me to Matthew 21. You won't be turning very much after this. Hang in there with me. I don't believe that there's a chronological error in John. I think he includes the first cleansing of the temple and Matthew, Mark, and Luke include the second cleansing of the temple and that it's not explained because the Jewish people were very familiar with this process. You know, dude, why is all your stuff outside and the priest in there? He'll do again. Hope it's not the second time. Could be somebody who wanted your land going, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It's like those people that squat on your land hoping you have not paid the taxes. Right? Can you imagine what that must have been like? So when you see a prophet go in and clear the whole temple and come out and make a statement about den of robbers, well, watch this. We'll look at more stringing pearls, but I'm going to run out of time. In Matthew 21, let's start in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. This is the week of his triumphal entry. Uh, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. In a rabbinic fashion, in the kind of way that a rabbi would string pearls, as I mentioned earlier, he's just combined two scriptures. The first is Isaiah 56, and it's a reference that esteems Gentiles. It says that Gentiles will be given a name in the house of God. These are the offenders, by the way. Those who were oppressing God's people. Those who God's people felt perfectly justified in ripping off. The next one is Jeremiah 7. He combines those two things when he says den of robbers. And Jeremiah 7's contest suggests that the temple would be torn down in Jeremiah's day. Because the people refused to repent and act like God. They did not like God's way. So when Jesus comes in and finds the same mildew that he found at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, he says, I'm going to open this thing up so that those Gentiles you hate can call on my name. And I'm going to open this thing up so that people can repent and turn and act like me rather than like you. In AD 70, the Roman siege general Titus laid waste and not one stone was left on another stone because God's priest had declared it unclean. There should be a profound message in this. Repentance, saints, is a gift. Acts 11:18 says, Even the Gentiles have been granted, granted repentance unto life. Granted. If you're in a position where God is revealing something in your heart that should not be there, 
take advantage of the gift of repentance because there comes a day when it is too late. You will absolutely reap what you've sown. If that does not scare you, I don't know what would. And I'm not trying to be a scary preacher. It scares me to death. It forces me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I find myself going back through past relationships wondering if I left it all right. Wanting to pick up the phone and call people and say, you know, I don't know what I ever told you. I'm sorry. I love you. I was wrong. I said, but what if I wasn't wrong? What difference does it make? Make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. The last scriptures that I have for you, and i got five minutes to do it, but I promise it's five minutes well spent. There is a tendency in us to want to disqualify people, to reason in our mind why what they say doesn't really matter. It doesn't count. If this shows up in your life against those in authority over you, you need to know you are cutting yourself off from God's only means of correcting you. The last thing any Christian wants to be is uncorrectable because you really have no hope when you're uncorrectable. Christians should be pliable. The only thing in you that should be stubborn is the revealed word of God in you. My brother Geraldo is here today. He has a heart for people that I can hear when he prays. He should be stubborn and unyielding about the heart that God has given him for people. Nobody should be able to change that. In other words, if he has a heart for this brother on the front row, No amount of gossip should change that. He should be stubborn in that regard. But he should be as pliable as could possibly be regarding things God has not revealed to him. Like, there should be at peace in this situation. There should not be arguing. Consider them better than you. Read Philippians 2. Consider everybody else better than yourself. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. These are the areas we should remain pliable in. The only areas you have the right to stand draw up your battle lines is when God has said to you for you about that situation let's be honest that's once or twice in a man's life that's not every day I want to read you something about this disqualifying people John 18 it'll be verse 8 soldiers come looking for Jesus of Nazareth I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost none that you gave me. Before I move on to the next verse, I need to tell you something personal from my own life. I was in a prayer meeting, and a brother in this room began to interpret my prayer language. Something that I had said in private in a car earlier in the day that nobody else knew. I had put my head on my steering wheel in tears and said, Lord, these things. Later that night, a man said, for two hours you have been praying this in my known language. I didn't know why that was significant. And I saw a vision that night where the Lord looked right at me and said, you shall lose none of them that I have given you. And he wasn't saying you're a good man, Eric, and you will lose none of them. He was commanding me, you will lose none of them that I have given you. Serious is a heart attack. I know why now. It's found right here. Jesus did whatever it took to lose no one that God had sent to him. And watch what happens. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had, drew, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Like Joseph, Jesus recognized that although sin was happening all around him, he was right where God intended him to be. And now the high priest servant is standing there without one ear. And you need to ask yourself, if Peter cut off his ear, why didn't he cut off his head? God knows I would have. Leviticus 21:18 through 21 teaches us that if a man has a blemish on his body, say like missing an ear, he's unfit for service in the temple. He's the high priest servant. The Hebrew word for that is sigan ha konin. It means he's the secretary of state. Peter saw this man of rank, of importance, doing something that was indecent something that was pitiful 
disgusting and sinful. And Peter's reaction was just like mine would have been. He's not worthy to hold that title. And he cut off his ear. There is something in us that wants to disqualify people when we see actions that are wrong. We want to throw the stone at the adulteress. After all, they deserve it. Luke 22, 49-51 records that Jesus picked up that man's ear and put it right back on his head. See, our king is not willing to disqualify the people we would disqualify. He looks right at us and says, You shall lose none of them that I have given you. And I want to encourage you, at any point you think a brother or sister in this church is disqualified, you might have a log in your own eye preventing you from seeing what's really wrong. You're now doing your own part. That was the case with me this week. At every turn that I began to appeal to the Lord and say, this is wrong, this is unjust, he showed me the mildew in my own heart. Why do we seek to disqualify when the Lord wants to qualify? He didn't come to condemn. He came to make people whole. What does your life do? Is it making people whole? In 40 B.C., a man named Antagonus cut off Hyrcanus II's ear because he didn't want him to become high priest, and he didn't become high priest. This is the way the world acts. It practices character assassination. We see it in our politics. We see it in our pulpits. It says that person is not worthy of your consideration. That person is not worthy of your love. But if you want to be perfect as the Father in Heaven is perfect, you love without limit without the need for reciprocity. Do I have time for one worship song? Time for one prayer? One chance to adjust your heart and see if we can get it right? Now stand to your feet. This week the air conditioner went out in my house. My living room flooded with sewage. I was driving down the road and my truck caught on fire in the cab with my kids in the car. And I could have focused on any one of those things, but the truth is, God was just emptying my house so it could deal with my heart. He was putting me in positions where I could see what he already knew was there. Mildew. And there should never be anything in our hearts that God doesn't want. Let's take Holy Ghost Clorox to it right now. Let's get right. Let's leave here better than we walked in here. At peace with all men wherever it's possible on your part. And don't take the easy way out and say it's not possible. With God all things are possible. Mighty God, though we lift up our hearts to you in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you don't just inspect our temple once or twice, but many, many times. Lord, we refuse to tear down other people's temple. They're the temple of God. We want with all of our heart to be found in right standing before you. Jesus, we want with all of our heart to be able to worship freely in your presence without guilty conscience, without hurtful thoughts. We want your approval, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Oh, oh, oh.
study Wednesday if you come for midweek service. Beyond that I don't remember anything else. Thursday for playing free. Thursday for playing free. <laughs> hey we love you very much. We hope that you're edified by what you heard today. And you'll be more edified if you live it. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.